City, City Limits. Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City Limits. Okay, City Limits, I'm Kevin Healy, Corey Green's over there. Corey, how are you this morning? All right, how are you? Yeah, you know, I think about it. Okay, yeah, yeah, just been riding away. <laughs> I'm awake somehow. Are you? <laughs> yeah, it's like opening your eyes is a good start. That's wonderful, you've done that. I can see, I can see, yes. Well, I can um, see, because my eyes are open. <laughs> exactly. And I can see clearly now my eyes are open. Uh, right, we could... I'm yeah, sorry. We, yeah, that's all right, that's all right, that's all right. No, it's, it's, it's your job to make the bad jokes on this. On this show, and I'm just yeah, it is. Isn't I'm it? stepping on your turf. Yeah, we're going to make some bad jokes this morning. I tell you, because we've got a really cheery program. Mm-hmm. We're going to kick off with uh, toxic waste again. We're going to catch Ooh, up with Helen. Waste. Yes, Helen Vandenberg, local activist out in the western, northwestern suburbs, about the time you know, the ongoing saga going on for years, the Tullamarine toxic waste. But she's also got some wonderful stories about how Vic Roads is treating people out there with total contempt. But then again, that's another toxic lot, isn't it? Vic Roads, <laughs> when you think about it. Um, and um, the second half being our energy day, the third Wednesday, the second Wednesday of the month, can we get it right? Second Wednesday of the month, um, the um, we're going to do an energy uh, story. And in fact, we're going to talk to... Uh, a filmmaker, a, do- a director of a film, a documentary about the Morwell fire last year. They they mm-hmm. went down there originally to do a short piece and they ended up staying around and doing a full-scale documentary that's almost completed. A bloke called Peter Yacono and um, and a woman called Anisha uh, Vergano, I think her name is, who who made it down there. And they're um, we're going to talk to Peter anyway. He's the he's the director, and we'll be talking to him about that. But it's uh, the whole you know aspect of that fire and mm. the. Um, and the aftermath, of course, and in fact, the inquiry, the second inquiry, the repeat, because they decided the first one was a bit inadequate. The second inquiry is completing at the moment, and in fact, there's a special hearing in court again for tomorrow, which I believe will lead to some more information, but we, which we haven't yet got because it hasn't come out yet. So that's a bit of a nuisance the day before, but, um, but nonetheless, uh, we'll talk about the whole impact of that fire and why he's making the documentary, and, mm. he, and he hopes to have a cinema release of it. So it's, um, you know, it's a serious documentary, hopefully. Yeah, great. As, a, as opposed to a non-serious one, I suppose. Yeah, there you are. Say something. I'm going to pour some tea. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, I only bought one cup because you're still on your tea thing, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. 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 Okay, right. That's there very... Um, what sort of tea do we have today? We've just got straight jasmine today. Okay. Straight jasmine, yeah. Straight jasmine. Yeah, well, it's not... Are you having it... Um, it lies there. It's not really straight. It sort of goes round the shape of the cup. Are you having yeah. it black or with milk? Or uh, no, just we always have Chinese tea with, you know, Asian teas. They don't have milk in there. I don't, anyway, I don't know if people do, but I don't know why you would. Uh, yeah, so there you go. I'll have a sip of it now. Hang on. Mm. Mm. I don't do that just so people knew I was having a sip. A um, couple of things before we go to, and we will go to Helen fairly quickly because they're going to be two, I think, fairly um, in-depth, in, or on, for this program anyway, in-depth interviews. So let's not take that too far. Um, the um, I noticed that this week um, uh, Scott Morrison has told us that a, a, a GST hike, as he calls it, um, which is, you know, hit the poor harder, uh, this would ease worker tax burden, he said. So apparently 
charging the poor more in tax will ease taxes on workers. So that's good, isn't it? Mm. Maybe his plan is to pay the workers less so then they'd have less income tax and then they'd also have uh, less GST tax because they can buy less. Yes, probably there's a logic to that, isn't there? Yes. Certainly workers having less seems to be the, the general go. Mm. Um, and it also, he doesn't mention the fact that it, what they really want to do is lower company taxes or taxes on the very rich, but then what the hell. And they're covered anyway because, and it's not, well, a good news also because headline says GST less regretted, regressive than critics say because we say it's a regressive tax, as you know. But the Productivity Commission, which is, you know, a, a, a working class body of all, um, the Productivity Commission, is, it's done a study and says um, families with no private income and relying almost exclusively on welfare, the GST consumes about 7% of their cash, while a household on more than 150000 shells out 5%. So they say the findings undermine the single most common criticism that it is too regressive or likely to fall heaviest on poorer households than the wealthy. Now, if you're spending 5% and getting 150000 or 7% of virtually nothing on welfare or low income, I think there's still a pretty major difference in terms of what you've got left over at the end of all that. Would you say that it's more or less regressive than Tony Abbott's views on women? Oh, oh that's a, how long have I got to answer that one? <laughs> Give me a bit of time to think about that. I think Tony probably comes out on top there, actually, when you think about it. But um, He's a winner. Yeah, Tony, oh, he was, Tony, he was. Tony's a winner. There's no question of that. So, yeah, we'll go for Tony on that one. But nonetheless, it's still a, I think it's still a touch regressive. And it's still more, anyway, how, the poor still pay 2% more of their, their income, their their than then the, the this is disposable earnings by the way disposable um so and you i realized that the poor had disposable earnings yeah, i think they only only those who aren't on welfare and poor could come to that conclusion i would have thought and that that would include i would that would include all those people on the productivity commission yes well they're all getting paid very well Indeed, um, it's not very productive, is it? <laughs> well, they 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 produce reports that tell you how to produce by workers taking less and working harder. Mm. That's the essential element of productivity. Do what I say and not what I do. I uh, got that one spot on, <laughs> spot on. Um, yes, and um, and the other one I thought just. Or the other one this week I think worth talking about, in fact, is the fact that the AWU last week agreed that Blue Scope Steel, this mm-hmm. this new deal for workers, I think, you know, that's extraordinary. I mean, I don't know if you're caught up with it, but the, the, the company, Port Kembla Plant, they claimed they had to close it down unless they got a better deal with the union. So what the deal did was wipe out the recent agreement they'd made for wage increases. They mm-hmm. don't even get them. Now there's a three-year wage freeze... 500 jobs will go. There's changes to conditions which make the workers work harder for the non-pay they're going to get. And on top of that, the only thing that hasn't been resolved yet is the company's demanding, I think it's 30, but I'll, I'll, I'll stand corrected on that, million in handouts from the New South Wales government in all sorts of concessions for the deal to work. So they, all want, they want the public purse to give them millions, plus workers to have a three-year wage freeze, forego the rise they've negotiated, lose 500 jobs anyway, and change their conditions so that they work a hell of a lot harder and productivity would clearly go up, etc., etc. And the AWU agreed to it. If the workers asked the money, asked the government for 
um, $30 million to share amongst themselves. Would the government claim that it was a uh, free market capitalist system that we're running after or is it a... Yeah, laissez-faire run riot, that's right. Or is uh, it a socialist system? Well, that's where it should come into it, isn't it? I mean, if if the company says we can't keep the place going but the workers who work there know very well how to work it, Mm. uh, I would have thought the company, a a good union might have said at some stage, why don't we just take it over? Mm. If they can't run it, kick them out and the workers will run the joint. Yeah, but I mean, no, obviously the no. managers aren't doing a very good job. Shit-ass job, um, actually. Mm. But, uh, yeah, but uh, so if the managers are incompetent and can't run it, uh, they're actually asking the workers to pay for their incompetence, but why not just and kick the them out and say, well, you're incompetent, you go off. And, uh, and of course, the reverse of that is the cu- everyone's saying, you know, the cu- governments and all the major you know, capitalist commentators are saying that the company's done, you know, the best it can. It threatens to close it down and, sac- and get rid of all the workforce. Now, You know, they never you know, say they've done the best they can about somebody who they consider a dull bludger. No, you know? no, that's right. So if, if workers said we're going to go on strike, they can be dragged before the courts and fined thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars, millions to the union um, for taking industrial action. So we're not going to turn up at work and that's it. But if they say the work's just not going to be there, they get all the sympathy mm. and um, the workers then have to pay for it. So uh, the law seems to work in one direction. But then again, given it is capitalist law drawn up by capitalists, mm-hmm. I suppose you've got to expect that, haven't you? Mm. Yeah. And what's this all got to do with the production of steel? Uh, well, the steel bit is what they're taking off the workers. <laughs> It's uh, it's well known. Let me think about it. <laughs> and the only other one I want to comment on about workers before we go to Helen Vandenberg is that um, our very favourite uh, Herald Sun and and in fact Fairfax, uh, not Fairfax, um, Murdoch News Limited financial commentator Terry McCran, or his name is I call him Terry Pucan on the week that was. Um, Terry has gone on it's holiday, so his page, in my opinion, has. Um, was given over to a guest writer this week. And guess who the guest writer was? It's none other than Mike Kane, the American head of Borel, who was named the Financial Review's Business Person of the Year last year for taking on the unions and going to the Royal Commission and screaming about how the CFMEU is crucifying him. And, and then a couple of weeks ago, the union got fined millions for upsetting poor Mike. And Mike has a headline, let's get fair dinkum. And by fair dinkum, he means we have to get fair dinkum about crushing unions in this country. They've got far too much power and they run the place. Uh, mm, unlike, if only. Yeah, we... Uh, I, I don't think that paper is as uh, directed towards the left as you'd like to think. Possibly not. He, he does say that institutions, meaning unions, that seek to impose outcomes solely by virtue of their power. Now, someone running a big international company were, would absolutely be aghast at the thought of someone solely uh, chasing in outcomes solely by virtue of their power, wouldn't they? Mm. Uh, yes, yes, my very word, they would. Make yourself powerless before <laughs> your enemy, before exactly. you... Exactly, exactly. We'll be seeing it down at the steel place, S-T-E-A-L. Um, okay. Shall we go to a track? Go to a track and we'll get Helen Vandenberg and talk about some sense. <laughs> <laughs> this is Beth Autumn with Stolen Car. You're listening to City Limits on 3CR, 8.55am or 3cr.org.au. You're listening to City Limits, I believe. Is that right, Kevin? Yeah, and you're going to back announce that uh, piece of... uh, Young people's music? Young people's music. That was uh, Beth Orton with Stolen Car. I got the stolen car, but I got him... But not stolen wages. No, no, it's no such thing. No. 
Okay, on the line, Helen Vandenberg. Yes. And, um, Helen, of course, long-term activist uh, in the western suburbs of northwestern suburbs of Melbourne. Um, uh, we have, I think, uh, boardrooms across the northwest of Melbourne shaking every time we hear her name. She denies <laughs> that. Um, Helen, we well instead of going straight to the Tullamarine toxic waste dump this morning, let's let's take a little bit of variety and get stuck into Vic Roads. I believe they're up to their usual antics in your part of the world as well. Well, yes. Um... <laughs> Yoss has made a sculpture of a bureaucrat without ears and one eye, and I think it describes Vic Rhodes to a T. Um, it's called the bureaucrat, I might add. Um, Yoss, but Yoss Vandenberg, by the way, being your husband partner, uh, just to let people know. Yeah, yes, a social and who's, a, who's an artist. He'll never be yes. able to sell his sculpture a, because no. it's too honest. I've got one of me in, in my, at my place somewhere, actually. I mean, yes, yes oh, well, you were in heads and tails because of your um, stand on human rights and fairness in the workplace, etc. So you had to have been active for at least 20 years on an issue before you'd do your head, so there was a bit of a strong criteria there. Anyhow, to our friends at Vic Roads, good morning, Kevin. Morning, um, they are going to widen the Tullamarine Freeway by taking away the emergency lanes, and we can all hear the good sense and safety involved oh. in that, because we believe in even more congested roads rather than... Vic Roads couldn't possibly mm. consider reducing its funding so we could give more money to public transport. However, the latest venture is as archaic as usual for the Northwest. Um, you may remember, Kevin, because you launched the public meeting of the Calder residents against freeway noise back in the 90s, and we were upset about the lack of a noise wall, and they were telling us because the Calder, this is the part that's just after the merge with Essendon, is an older freeway, you can have 68 decibels before it qualifies for a noise wall. So we, got, we arced up well and truly about that and we eventually got the noise wall, even though we were not at 68. However, with the new extension of the Tullamarine, um, if you are north of Buller Road and going into the city and Transurban, who have made millions out of their tolls, are going to put up new noise walls if you're at 63 dBA. If, however, you're south of Buller Road and going towards Gladstone Park and Tullamarine, you will only get a noise wall if you're at 68. So we are again having the conversation, do they think we're genetically different or a subspecies of humanity and therefore engineered somehow genetically to withstand more noise? They were somewhat, somewhat shocked at the question. However, that is the reality that they're living by. Well, just uh, on that, if they're shocked at the question, what, what was their answer as to why the difference? They didn't have one, Kevin. That's just what they're going to do. Oh, right, OK. Yeah. okay. We're back in the land of the autocrats. Yeah. Silly As question. Said, yeah. Their head office should have been moved to Rome many yeah. decades ago. Yeah. Um, they are quite infallible. <laughs> so, um, I don't know. Uh, Caesar wasn't that infallible. Uh, I mean, in the end. But Illa Papa well, is. Look, Illa Papa is infallible. Those believe it come a cropper eventually. <laughs> um, nevertheless, they're going to take the English, the bridge over the Tullamarine that connects... Matthews Avenue and Essendon Airport. They're just going to take it off around Christmas time next year, remove it and put back a new one that is only slightly wider. Now, Mooney Valley Council have been talking to Vic Roads for decades and for years, and they said to them, this is an opportune time to take the tram line under the bridge so the tramway can just go on its merry way. It should improve efficiency for the tram line. It would reduce the amount of hazard for those trying to cross the, on the very narrow footpath on one side of the bridge. And so we got, re and we'd been talking to Mooney Valley Council, and we 
totally supported this idea and getting rid of those overhead stair pedestrian overpaths because they're discriminatory anyhow. Mm. However, people do use them at the moment because it's less risky. If you're fit and able to sprint up those steep stairs, that's safer than going across uh, the pedestrian crossings that are there. And Vic Roads maintain that you could take a wheelchair across there, so it doesn't really matter. They can put back these stairs. And we said, you've got to be joking. <laughs> Anyhow, we said, we went into bat and we asked for a meeting, eventually got one, took Ben Carroll, our local member, with us. Um, and we wanted to know what was going on. Vic Roads said, oh, Mooney Valley didn't fight very hard for it. Mm. So an obvious, the, the obvious implication being, doesn't matter whether there's logic and good sense and future planning here and cost effectiveness, because if you do it now, it's cheaper than doing it later. It's just they didn't battle hard enough for it. Mm. So, so, well, so we went into battle and we went in battled hard and we got nowhere anyhow. So we're going to have another argument about that. And we're the, about to go back to round two. So on if that. you if you've got a, a mobility problem or in a wheelchair or something, um, what do you do now? You just run the risk. You run the risk, and if you look at the curbside down, it's more like you go jolt down, jolt up. I reckon if you weren't careful in a wheelchair, you could tip because it's so steep. You know, it goes it virtually, oh, the curb's gone to a little ramp just down into the gutter and then straight up. There's not even space there to put a wheelchair wheel down properly as far as I can see. And anyhow, none of those people have ever had a sore back or they wouldn't be saying this is a good thing. Mm. Um, and I can vouch for what it's like to be jolted. So there we are. We are, and they told us, and we were all very polite and didn't laugh out loud, though we all smirked. They told us that they were very proud of the appearance of their freeways. Now, I can see 10, in, 10 centimetres of plastic litter under all the salt bushes along the Western Ring Road, mm. and it's been there for months. They tell us if it's grass and they mow it, they will pick up the litter before they mow. I don't know what kind of quality um, management they've got of their contractors. I suggest nil, because we see the mowers mowing the litter. Right now, so it doesn't grow back. Does that work? Well, the litter <laughs> becomes confetti, and the, those who want to throw it over brides can go out and pick it up if they so wish. Mm. So, it, but on the side, on the exit ramp of the colder here that comes up into Wurite Place, we now have lights courtesy of Penley and Essendon Grammar School having to pay for them, and so we can now get out one of our freeway exits safely, not the other one. If you go up that ramp, because that would involve traffic management, you'd have to have somebody there protecting the people picking it up. They don't do those areas. So that's why we have all this plastic litter coming off just this short section of the exit ramp and coming into Steel Creek and then washing down the Maribyrnong River. Hopefully some of it will get caught and the rest can go out to Port Phillip Bay and then out into the ocean to join all the other plastic litter mm. in our oceans. And Think including, those, including we'll come to it. Including will come to it. What's leaking, leaching out of the toxic waste up as well, further down a bit. So it's all, oh yeah, well all of it's that. all going into but the on same top water. Of that, they take no responsibility for their stormwater control. They do nothing to. Um, I mean, this is where we have to be innovative and nimble, if I may use the current in words. We need Vic Roads to look at how and where it can store massive amounts of stormwater underground or in lakes and treat it and then release it slowly to the waterways that's what needs to be done and at the moment um 
Well, last year I went to a meeting with a guy who was doing the stormwater policy. I haven't heard another word since except that there's now a survey, so I've done that in, filled that in. So there we are. Vic Roads takes pride in the appearance of its roads, mm. takes no responsibility for the stormwater. And if you go out along the Calder, all you will see are weed-infested and eroding embankments. Yeah. I have, well, a, I have a question, Helen. With the stormwater, um, where did you get the idea that it's better to um, release it slowly than in gushes? Oh, that's, naturally, it, wouldn't it more like no, you know, come down a river in gushes? Um. No, what we've got now is high velocity frequently going through the creeks and eroding the um, banks. So the because of urbanisation increasing the volume of water, in a natural water cycle, the creek would normally get 3% of rainfall and the rest trickles through as groundwater. Mm-hmm. But as we've covered most of the surface, we're now getting something like 55% of stormwater instantly into the creeks. Now, that just erodes the um, causes turbidity, which means that's like tr- for a mic- macro invertebrate trying to live in the creek, that's like being put into an instant high density storm, dust storm. So, you know, you can suffocate in that quite quickly. So, you can't get it, things to live in our creeks because if they're not um, being impacted by the heavy metals that are dep- being deposited into the silts, um, they're frequently without oxygen and without clear water. So, yeah. Mm. This so is the you same. Have to capture the water, treat it, release it slowly. Um, that doesn't mean to say you wouldn't create some decent flows, but at the moment our creeks are stressed by too many high, um, strong flow events. I'm mm. going to say our faith in Vic Road's claims, of course, could probably exemplified at Kunung Creek Valley, Kunung Creek Valley, <laughs> where they actually uh, not only knocked all the trees over, redirected the creek and put a put a freeway smack through the middle, the Eastern Freeway Extension. Now, they, I remember the they, battle. They then said, we have enhanced the quality of the Creek Valley. Now, um, That's right. So, they think concrete or bitumen is an enhancement right. of any natural so that's so environment. M- so much for their boasting. Well, that's what they asked in the survey. It says, what are Vic Road's good at? And I said, self-promotion. <laughs> 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 All right, look, we'll, 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 we'll now go back go to the what we usually talk about at the start, the toxic waste up. Um, I think most listeners here would be pretty aware of the long-going saga and it, it never seems to get cleaned up. What's the latest? Well, the saga volume two, hey? On the first yeah, volume of February, we will have completed 10 years, so we will then be into the second decade of this. Well, trans... This, now, is, this is the second decade of cleaning it up after it was closed. Well, that's probably going to tell how long it's going to take. Mm. Anyhow... Just to explain for the listeners, this is the Tullamarine toxic waste dump run by uh, Trans-Pacific. 49 mm. hectare hole that was filled with Melbourne's industrial waste, originally with liquid waste. So we have oils with PCB, high um, concentrations of PCBs. Anything above 50 parts per million has to be destroyed. Anyhow, and we have lots of that. We have 220 different chemicals interacting in there. The internal temperature of the dump is about 42 degrees. It was not lined at the base or on the sides at the base either. So um, it leaches. It's in fractured rock, which is fractured basalt, which is basalt that cooled quickly, so there's lots of cracks and lots of pathways out. The chemicals, according to the Environmental Auditor, will continue to be active for at least 100, if not 200 years, Um, and they change from one chemical back into another one and then can reform 
back into vinyl chloride, for instance. Uh, anyhow, the emissions from the dump are being transported off-site as gases into the air and into the groundwater is also giving off carcinogenic gases like um, trichloroethane and vinyl chloride. The groundwater is polluted well beyond the dump um, to the border of the residential area and we have been asking for years and years of EPA to get the groundwater tested in the residential area because we believe it's under there and in fact the auditor said so at one of our meetings but it's never been put in writing. So um, the residents are concerned that they may be being exposed randomly um, and at what rate we wouldn't know to odourless carcinogenic gases. Um, and we want some answers. There's a gas extraction system at the top of the dump which technically gathers in the gases, takes them to one point where they are burned off and released into the air, releasing the toxic chemicals that are not destroyed into the air. The flare has now been enclosed, but it was supposed to perform to the standards that US EPA says, which is 99.999% efficiency. It's not performing to that level. And therefore, um, there are toxins being released into the air in the residential area. Adjacent to the 49 hectares is a 29-hectare site, which is called a buffer zone. It's a piece of land that has nothing on it. Um, It must be there during the operations of landfilling, but once the landfill closes, EPA forgot to mention in the Act that these buffer zones, which are there for upset conditions, should be maintained post-closure. After the Brooklyn Greens fiasco, where they had to um, remove people from their homes because they were at risk of asphyxiation or their houses being blown up, um, they realised it was wrong to bring people closer than 250 metres towards the dump. Now, that's just an ordinary landfill. We've got carcinogenic fugitive gases, and it would seem the EPA thinks there's less risk involved in that. Uh, Of course, the fact that it's odourless is in everybody's favour, isn't it? Hmm. Um, So we're at the position now where they wish to put, sell that land and have 52 separate land parcels on it, which would be used for factories, warehouses and a limited number of offices. And this is another stunning example of Vic Road's work. They've said, oh, no, it's better to have factories and warehouses there because you'll only get one truck, whereas you might get more cars. Nobody's sort of considered that one truck these days, as long as about three to six cars, that um, it makes more noise, that the hours of operations of business means these things could be coming along at 4am in the morning. But Vic Rhodes thinks all that is better than having cars. Mm. Well, and also, of course, also, Helen, the, the workers in those in those new factories and offices, etc., will, be, will be getting right. will be getting all that odourless gas you're talking about. Well, yeah, don't forget, Kevin, they're always telling us that it's a safe level, and we say safe for whom and what's the effect of a cocktail, because we're not getting one chemical. There's no answer to that, because they haven't done the research to find out what's your risk. Mind you, in the US EPA recently, um, an activist-type doctor got up and said that doctors have to stand up and take and, and become activists on this Um, the terrible exposure people are getting from toxic chemicals in all kinds of products and in different situations because there is increasing evidence showing that babies are born pre-polluted. So, um, and this has impacts on development, health and longevity. So it is an issue globally as well. So there we are. 
let's sell the land. Mind you, if you want to know the answer to have we got the oil out of the dump, which the pollution abatement notice that the EPA issued a couple of years ago, the answer is no. The company still maintains now, which it wouldn't initially, that microbes will eat it. We've pointed out that microbes eat um, oils when they're fresh and not polluted. They say they will. And I'm, I think they haven't got quite got a hold of the fact that they can't tell the microbes what to eat. If stale polluted oil is going to kill the microbes, I don't see how they're going to live to eat it. Anyhow, yeah, those little they, microbes aren't stupid, are they? No, and Harry Van Moore, the Director of Western Region Environment Centre, put in a scathing submission on the inadequacies of their own apple proposal, to which EPA has responded with, ah, oh, we shall bring in an outside expert to clarify the issues that we have raised. So better better having, just explain, exactly. Helen, what Apple means, by the way, just very quickly. Oh, liquid non-aqueous phase leachate, which means they suck up what's at the bottom of the dump, which is supposed to be dry, but it's not, and then they separate the oil and the water, and once upon a time they put the contaminated water into the sewer and the oil back in the dump. Well, the EPA says this is not good for the environment because this stuff... Really? Yeah, really. Isn't that clever? Um, you know, there's water at the bottom of the dump and the oil is floating on that. And they're saying that it has to be removed. But now TPI have got faint-hearted about it. EPA's never been strong. So we're still waiting for a decision on whether or not they're going to enforce their own pollution abatement notice and make them bring it up. We're going to have to wind up. Unfortunately, we've got to go to the next interview. But just in a minute or so, just where are we at then? I mean, we say this every oh. time, but we just keep going on and on. Oh, we're on the treadmill. And um, the buffer, we're awaiting, the council put out the rezoning um, request at the behest of TPI. The community put in 244 objections. Council has to wade through those and, we, and it may, the council can abandon it, which would be the sensible thing. Or they can refer it to a panel or they can say, yes, we'll do the rezoning change it a bit. We recommend to council most strongly that they avoid all the legal complexities that would come from having 52 separate owners on the buffer zone and that they keep the ownership of the buffer and the landfill in the same company's hands and so they have to make that decision. Um, so we're in the process of waiting to see what council is going to do. Okay, look, we'll catch up with that, Helen. Thanks again for updating well, us go. and uh, yeah, you must be living a, a pretty quiet, relaxed life these days, obviously. Not retirement's wonderful. <laughs> In the amount of time I've spent on colour, I could have learned another language. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> well, you, I've learned a lot about chemicals, though. Well, that's right. You almost are speaking another language now, aren't you? That's in one sense. Yeah. <laughs> okay, thank you. Okay, thanks, Helen. Bye. So that was Helen Vandenberg. Yeah. Um, talking about the telemarine toxic waste dump, and you're listening to City Limits on 3CR. 8.55am, the time is 9.37. And we're going to wander back and talk film. Yes. And we're going to go to a track. This is Ireland with Black Australia. You're listening to City Limits on 3CR 8.55am, 3 The time is 9.42 and that was Ireland with Black Australia. And we've got Peter Yacono on the line. Peter's director of a film that's been made. It's just about completed, I think, a documentary on the uh, Morwell fire last year, the aftermath, and where it's all gone in terms of all sorts of things like health, etc. And, um, Peter, just to background this before we um, get into more detail of what the film's about, you you went there, I believe, originally to do some short little piece, and you ended up staying, realising there was a full-length documentary <laughs> in the whole thing. 
It is so juicy, the uh, the area of Latrobe Valley. It is so juicy. Once you get into it, you get sucked into the area and um, you grow a strong affection to the area. And as a Melbourneian, you don't really realise how important Latrobe Valley is to the whole of Victoria. So we, we had the idea of uh, making a bigger global kind of uh, climate change movement video. And then uh, we went along to a gentleman by the name of Bob Massey, who's an economist, and he was talking about looking local. Um, so, and, and at that group, we uh, at that meeting, we, we met a group called uh, Voices of the Valley from the Latrobe Valley. We went there and we were love at first sight, and we've been back ever since the last probably about six or seven months now, nonstop, pretty much. Right, and um, so, and the film's almost finished, isn't it? The, the film is shot, um, and at the moment we're, we're uh, crowdfunding the film. We're about three or four days away from the completion of that, and we're about 60% funded at the moment. We're looking for $10,000 to get this film into post-production. We have probably about 60 to 70 hours' worth of interviews shot in Latrobe Valley. It's about 1.1 terabytes worth of footage, some amazing B-roll, B-roll shot from aeroplanes, from drones, from sides of, uh, you know, sides of cars, all that kind of stuff. We're, we're trying to tell the story of Latrobe Valley and, and how they're looking for a just transition for a more sustainable future. Mm-hmm. Um, they're really leading the way in, in Victoria. Um, I don't think many Melbournians are thinking about where they're going to get that power from in 5, 10, 20 years' time. And, and what they're doing in Latrobe Valley with brown coal is definitely not sustainable. And, and if we're considering ourselves very progressive here in, in Melbourne, we need to do something uh, you know about it pretty quickly. So what sort of um, power uh, production are they heading towards? Say that again, sorry. What methods of power production are they heading towards in the Latrobe Valley? Well, I, I don't know if... Um, I mean, we look at this as a Victorian problem. Um, we've got 6 million people in Victoria that, that will need power into the coming years' time. I'm, I'm a 31-year-old male, and, um, you know, how politicians kind of deal with these issues and look, look ahead and, and plan the infrastructure and the power and the roads and all that kind of stuff, you know, I would argue they don't look 10, 20, 30 years in, in the future. They only look election to election. So this is a community-based film. It's 100% independent. It's community-focused, and it's about moving the state forward. And um, I don't know if your your viewers will be familiar with brown coal in terms of how bad it is, but it's it's basically halfway between peat, which is the stuff they used to dig out of the ground and, you know, make campfires with, and, and black coal, which they burn up in New South Wales and Queensland, Brown coal is nowhere near black coal, and it's very, very toxic. It's very, very bad. And the state of Victoria burning that, um, you know, we burn it and we make 80 to 90% of our power, even on sunny days, through brown coal. We have such an opportunity to to uh, provide the power to all Victorians through renewable energy, through wind, through solar, through hydro, and through battery technology as well. Even before the fire, wasn't Hazelwood one of the uh, worst polluting power plants yeah, in the entire world? Yeah, the three brown coal mines in Latrobe Valley are, I think, the top three or the top four in Australia. So that, this is why how bad brown coal is. Um, some of the biggest polluters in terms of NOx and SOx and sulphur and all that, all that bad stuff. Um, yeah, Hazelwood, was, I think, was contracted to 2005 and then extended for another five years. And here we are in 2015 and we're still using it. You know, that power plant alone provides 30% of the power to the state. Um, we need to start replacing that and... and um, you know, but it's also a concern for Latrobe Valley people as well. You know, they've been through 25, 30 years of, um, you know, the economy ramping down for them. They've gone through privatisation. They've gone through your lawn, which has been basically ripped up for coal. Um, you know, through the privatisation, they lost 30%, 30, 30 to 40% of their workforce overnight. 
they've never recovered from that as well. And, and you know, if Cole's going to be moving out of the picture as well, there's going to be nothing left for Latrobe Valley. So mm. that's why we talk about a just transition for the whole of the state. Indeed, you know, that's an important point because I think a lot of people in the city, you say, you know, from Melbourne as well, you didn't realise you got there, but think you can just close it down because it's so bad and then that's it. But in fact, there's a yeah. hell of a lot of wage packets and people living in the Latrobe Valley who depend on it. So you really have to have a transition that gets them over that original problem of, uh, of losing those jobs and finding, finding alternatives, obviously. Absolutely. I was always told to... Uh... <laughs> There's two things that I go on, you know, you, you, you leave things how you found them and you also pay respects to the people that have come before you and, and done all the hard work. And listen, the Troy Valley has been the sacrifice zone for Melbourne, for the whole of Victoria. You know, they've provided power since 1922 to all of Melbourne. Uh, so John Monash set up the Troy Valley uh, scheme in 1922 and started running power to Melbourne. Ever since then, we've lived off the prosperity and the power of the Troy Valley. You know, it's time for all Victorians to kind of rally behind Latrobe Valley and as a collective, all of Victoria and even even people across Australia and very similar communities up in the Hunter Valley in New South Wales and all the way up through the coast, you know, we're, we're starting, the community members are starting to um, control this direction in terms of where we get our power from in the future, both physically and also socially as well. And that's, you know, that's where the name Our Power comes from. It's twofold. It works like that. Yeah, a bloke called Andy Vesey, who's the new head of AGL just recently, who run the Lo Yang, the you know biggest polluter around the place. Uh, they say they're going to get out of fossils by 2050, which shows they're pretty committed to it. But um, the uh, he says they can only get out if they get lots of government help. Um, so they seem to have solved the people funding thing that you're going into. Um, the, the public just pays him to get out, um, even yeah. if he's going to take 30 years to do it. Well, we know we we know when the carbon tax came, uh, came in a few years ago with Julia Gillard that the um, the three brown coal mines got a lot of subsidies. I think it was in the order of two hundred fifty million dollars per mine. I think it was. So they've already been paid out a lot in terms of the carbon tax federally as well. I think forty two billion dollars goes in at a federal level to coal to prop up the coal industry. That includes, you know, the coal industry here in Victoria providing our base load power. Um, you know, you do the math, that works out to be, um, I think it's about $20,000 per household, or you'd have to do the math better than I, I do. You know, I would love to see that money instead of, you know, that's taxpayers' money being spent on coal, propping up the coal industry. I'd rather put that money into solar subsidies or whatever and getting, you know, small solar systems on roofs and, mm. and empowering the people at a kind of a, a grassroots kind of level. That's, that's what I'm pushing for. Yeah, these companies have made... You know, billions and billions over a long, long period from polluting, and now they're saying we we can only stop polluting if the government props up our pays us to stop polluting, and even they actually want the government also to meet the costs of uh, of of the workers who are going to lose their jobs, etc. Mm. Well, I mean, we've reached we've reached parity in terms of renewables. In terms of, I mean, brown coal is so cheap. It, we're talking about brown coal that. 30 centimetres under the surface of the um, of the ground. It's so easy to dig up. There's 500 years of it in the Latrobe Valley. They could just keep on burning it and burning it for generations. But, you know, even now, price parity is equal in terms of renewables, solar and wind. Um, you know, if you, if you take out $42 billion at a federal level being propped up of the coal industry, you know, the, it's not a fair fight. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Like, it's, they're being propped up by the government and... and uh, and the power structures that that represents in terms of the physical power is, is it's almost in the same ways that we're looking in terms of the social stuff that's happening right now as well. 
um, you know, I want to empower the people. I want to put the I want to put the power back into the, the masses rather than the few. That's what that's what I'm aiming to do as well. Yep, we're talking to Peter Yakono, who's uh, director of a new film, new documentary just being made or it's being made about the Latrobe Valley and the Morwell fire. On the fire last year, one one of the the major factors in it was, of course, that the company had, for economic reasons, removed the firefighting equipment from the mine, yeah. which and it yep. could have been put out within a day or within a few minutes one yeah. assumes uh, that seems to be a, a major problem there that the you know company company saving money has cost the community so much we know that the maintenance regime at hazelwood is very it's nothing they've got nothing within their budgets to maintain these 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 mines there are differences between the three of them um agl we've i mean agl opened their open their mine doors to us we've toured the whole mine the open cut what they've got there in terms of the infrastructure, because it was built in the 80s rather than the 60s, they've got a lot more infrastructure there. They've got um, gravity-fed um, water systems that, you know, if they lose power to the mine, which they did at Hazelwood Fire, they can still flood the mine with water and, you know, protect their assets and protect the communities as well. You know, at Hazelwood, it's not, it's not the case. You know, uh, half the problem is they lost power during the start of that fire and they couldn't run the pumps to actually generate any more sprinkler systems. And exactly right, you know, six or 12 months, I think, before the fire as well, they took $50,000 worth of copper pipes out of the mine out of the northern batters, which created more, most of the problems for the community, unfortunately, um, during the 45 days of the fire. Um, you know, it, they're skimping. They're cutting, the, they're, they're cutting every single corner. Um, you can see it in the particular matter that comes out of the eight stacks of Hazelwood as well, and, and we're hearing locals talk about it as well. During the carbon tax, it was very, very clear. Now that the carbon tax is gone and, and they've got zero maintenance budgets, you know, it's just, it's just brown muck that's coming out of the towers, you know, almost 24-7 these days. It's, it's it's just not good enough, unfortunately. So um, a year after the fire, what have been the um, developments in the health effects to the community? Well, they reckon that there's about 11 or 13 people they can through, that they can show through the statistics that the, um, that the government's already put out that have already died throughout the fire, throughout the 45 days. Um, there's many, many people that we've already talked to that are still very, very sick of this fire. Unfortunately, there's not a... Um, the community is not very outspoken. They're not used to coming out and speaking up against, you know, the companies that provide them all, all this money and prosperity and even the government, in a sense. Um, so, yeah, the, the fire was definitely a line in the sand for the community. You know, that, that was enough for them, enough for us. Um, you know, they deserve better than this. They're living on the edge of a, of a mine and, and they, they, they live through 45 days, over 1,000 hours worth of brown coal smoke, which is be, being built which is being burnt unfiltered off the northern batters, which is, you know, covering 100,000 people in the valley. Um, you know, there's, there's got to be better ways of us producing power than, than relying on these kind of systems. Mm. Has it mostly been breathing problems people have or is there, is there a whole range of health problems? There's a whole range of um, problems. Unfortunately, particulate matter is, is very, very fine. We're talking about 2.5 um, uh, particle matters that that get into your blood systems, get, you know, get inside the air sacs of your lungs and stay there and provide, you know, and I don't know if you guys are familiar with the area, but the area went through the asbestos problem of the 70s and 80s mm-hmm. and some of those events took 15 to 20 years to surface. You know, we had guys 20 years later, you know, curl, uh, you know dying to, uh, you know, emphysema and, and lung problems and all that kind of stuff 15 years later. Well, I can tell you I'm already speaking to guys 12 months out from the fire, 18 months out of the fire that are already in that situation. Um, I've already told you that there has been death due to the fire. 
already, um, and there's going to be many more. That's that's the really sad thing, and I want all Melburnians to understand that this is happening. It's happening in an hour and a half east of them, and this is where all their power comes from. Mm. I was talking to your colleague Anisha yesterday. She also mentioned birth defects. Has that been a, become a problem at all? We spoke to a young lady. She's 20 years of age, and she had a plaid in pregnancy during the, during the fire, and... Um, yeah, she had a uh, a birth defect, and then she had a miscarriage for the second time that she tried. And you know, this is a fit young twenty-something girl. She's in the prime of her life, ready to make babies. Um, doesn't smoke. Very, you know, very light drinker. Um, and when the baby came out, listen, I don't want to go into too much details because it's kind of gruesome. But you know, birth defects. You can see the top of the, the you can see through the baby's skull. You know, the skulls are not formed correctly. Um, we we don't honestly know what. There's no precedent for this. There's mm. no industrial fire that's as big as this that's happened in Australian shores before. We we simply don't know. That's that's the scary bit for us. Yeah, it certainly is. And um, and in terms of um, in terms of this whole trans transmission transformation of the valley and and changing it. Yeah. I mean, how far down the track is that? It's really still at a pretty pretty um, you know unadvanced stage, isn't it? It is, it is, and that's, the, and that's what the premise of this film is about. It's about community members taking the power back and setting their own direction in society and where they get their power from in the, in the coming generations. I've kind of given up on politicians. Obviously, I still vote. We're still part of that political system, but, mm. you know, that goes election to election. And, and um, you know, listen, I don't want to name any names, but um, I was reading stuff on the Greens website the other day or on Facebook, and, um, you know, they're, they're active in the Latrobe Valley, but possibly the way they go about stuff is, is more, um, you know, they don't, they'll go into areas, they'll invest time in terms of seats that are marginal. You know, they'll, they'll put, you know, effort in there, but they won't put effort maybe in Morwell or Traralgon or, you know, the towns that basically sit on the mines that are not so marginal. They're, they're the people that have been living there for 90 or 100 years putting up with all this. Um, you know, and I, I just think the political system is kind of failing us a little bit. Um, we've seen at least at a federal level, we can't seem to get through, uh, we can't get a prime minister through a full term. Um, you know, I don't know how we're meant to make long-term infrastructure decisions um, for future generations when our prime minister can't even last two or three years. So, um, you know, socially, community-wise, you know, I think that's where it's at. There's a lot of, um, we've spoken to a lot of people that think community leaders in the next 20 or 30 years are going to be very influential and, and um this is what this all film's about. It's, called, it's, it's our power. It's the power of the 90% or the 95% in terms of where, you know, my kids are going to be generating power in, in 20 to 30 years' time mm. and how I'll be living. And, of course, there's a front-page story in this morning's of Financial Review, which is sort of the, you know, you get, this is just typical of what comes out almost every day, saying Southeast Asian coal demand is set to triple in the next 25 years, bucking a global trend and giving Australia's coal exporters a desperately needed boost, etc., etc. So the other, yeah. end of the, the other end of the spectrum is pushing hard. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> What we're talking about is diversifying, and um, you know I've talked about a political and a social system. I, my my background is actually information management and systems before I did my media communications degree, and how I see this is a centralised versus decentralised approach. When Sir John Monash set up the Latrobe Valley in 1922, everything was decentralised. You had a ring of um, power systems that were all across um, Victoria, and each one of them provided a certain percentage there. And when he centralised the process, all the problems, all the, you know, were put into one corner of the state. Yeah. And we're kind of making our way back to a more decentralised approach now. We're relying on many technologies over many, many 
different locations to kind of feed in the grid. Peter, we're um, almost out of time, unfortunately, but just yeah. in the next 30 seconds, just give us some detail of the film and or more particularly this, this crowdfunding you're, uh, you're yeah, after. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I'm terrible with my words. I'm a much better filmmaker. And, you know, <laughs> I'd be really honoured if, if everyone would go check out. Um, we've got four really quick trailers. They're all about one or two minutes long. If you just go to ourpowerdoco, all one word, ourpowerdoco.com, Check out the trailers, and if you click on Donate, that will take you to a crowdfunding campaign. We're about three days out, and we're about 60% funded at the moment. We'd love your help. If you're interested in any of this, please go along and just check it out. All right, Peter. Look, thanks for your time, and um, and we'll keep up with you on that one and, and keep an eye on it as, it, as it's developing. Thanks so much. Good. Thanks, thanks for your so time. Much, okay. Thank Good you. Bye. Peter Kono there, who's director of that film, and um, he's hoping to have a cinema release, and I presume ultimately a television release if they get the whole thing sorted out. Yeah, we're, we're we're listening out of, to City Limits. We're out of time, correct? 3CR, 8.55 a.m. Housing next week. Thank yourself. Tell people housing next week. Housing next week. And this is Future of the Left with Throwing Bricks at Trains.